You are listening to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empowers you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. And I'm super thrilled to bring you stories, inspirations, and strategies to get more meaning in your work and in your life, make more money, and lead a movement to change the world. I am a digital communication and personal branding strategist, business advisor, award-winning author, and a speaker. I am on a mission to help professionals, corporate executives, and entrepreneurs to become leading voices in their field by finding what makes them unique and creating compelling messages to the right audience. If you are ready to leverage your personal brand in a meaningful way to create a successful business you love, get in touch. Book a strategic call at francinebelly.com slash call. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-N-E-B-E-L-E-Y-I.com slash call. I'm excited to share with you the recording of this episode of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast with someone that I really, really admire and I've known for a decade now, Dr. Bruce Lloyd, Emeritus Professor in Strategic Management, London South Bank University. He has accepted to share his wisdom with you all and you will see that this is not the exact format of my usual podcast and we are in live conditions. Uh, The first part of this is like a masterclass and how to think strategically about the future. Dr. Bruce as a through academic has been so generous with his wisdom that I am actually splitting this interview in two episodes to make it digestible. I trust that you will really love these episodes. This is very unusual, actually, uh, conversation that we are having today in uh, live uh, um, conditions. Uh, so today we have on the show a wise man that I really admire and I'm fortunate to call a friend, Bruce Lloyd, Emeritus Professor in Strategic Management in London, South Bank University. He spent over 20 years in industry and finance before joining the academic world to help establish the management center at what is now the London South Bank University. Bruce has written extensively on a wide range of strategy and futures related issues, including articles exploring the link between leadership wisdom, knowledge management, and organizational performance. He was also the UK coordinator for the Millennium Project uh, and has been active in the futures industry. And we met a decade ago, actually, at a foresight event in London. He now has all the time to travel the world and explore his artistic side. We are, as I say, in a very different setting today than my usual recording place. So you might be hearing noises. That is because we are in live conditions and meeting face to face. Hi, Bruce. Welcome to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast. I'm really excited to have you finally on this show. Hi. Well, very pleased to be here. 
I know we've had um, some problems in trying to find a quiet spot, but this is probably the best we can do for the moment. Okay, so Bruce, tell us in your own words uh, what you are currently doing. Well, um, as you mentioned, uh, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in industry and finance before ending up in the academic world. And in theory, I've been retired for over a decade now. So in terms of what work I do, um, in particular, I have ended up um, supervising PhDs. And that is probably the last thing I would have expected to have done when I left school many decades ago. Uh, So I keep uh, an involvement with the university through that and giving them occasional lectures, particularly around future studies, which I happen to have got into in the 60s, which was a period when there was a lot of concentration on future studies, a lot of interest in it. Um, But it's surprising how few people know about this subject area of future studies. Uh, Everybody knows about strategy, but future studies, which is very connected with strategy, seems to be in a different box. So um, what would would you say is the difference between strategy and future studies? Well, the main thing about strategy is it's it's a very practical examination of the resources available to an organisation and exploring how it can achieve its objectives most effectively. Now, future studies is an attempt to more systematically examine what is likely to happen in the future. Uh, There's a big overlap between the two, but in a way, strategy starts from where we are today and moves forward, and future studies starts from where we are in the future and works backwards. Mm -hmm. And the two then overlap. But while everybody's interested in the future, and most people spend a lot of their time living in the future, very few people have come across the subject of future studies. And when I talk to students about it, the one thing that I suggest they do, and it might be useful to mention this, is just to look up future studies in Wikipedia because there's a lot of relevant, useful information about issues around the future, people who are studying this as their main occupation. And it's interesting that well, we have lots of think tanks and most of these are future studies institutes, but it's very... Um, rare to find that um, these institutes are um, connected in to the the broad area of future studies. Um, The World Future Society, the World Future Studies Federation, uh, the Association of Professional Futurists, lots of these organisations are trying to look at future development 
and most of them put enormous amounts of material onto the internet for free. Mm. So anybody that's interested in strategy and future studies should also should be looking at both. But yeah. strategy books, I haven't come across one that really integrates it properly with future studies. Okay, so I'm going to put all those books in the show notes uh, um, so people can have a look. This is how we met actually at the one event of uh, at the time when there was a department of future studies. Yes. Is there still one again in the UK? Is this, I, do I, they still have one? I don't know that they do, but yeah. they quite often change the names <laughs> the name, of the, exactly. these things. <laughs> and there is an awful lot of material that comes out of government, mm -hmm. both in the UK and in the US. Mm. Um, at least it did, I'm not quite sure whether it still does, but it used to, yeah. uh, about looking at future scenarios. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it may well be now, with um, international developments, that the uncertainty is so great that on the one hand, people don't think that it, it's very useful mm to look at the future mm -hmm. because of the uncertainties um, and then people become much more short-term. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, an enormous number of decisions have to be made that have long-term implications and so you have to re really look at um, future development in a very broad way. Yeah. Some people sometimes confuse future studies and forecasts. Can you tell us the difference? Or having a crystal ball. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about having a crystal ball, um, because uh, a crystal ball is is much more about having a hunch about things. And what, what I always try to argue is that future studies is about exploring the area of the future in a more systematic way, looking at all the issues and their relationships, and. Uh, Forecasting, some people say that because of the uncertainty, there's no point in forecasting. But forecasting, like a lot of strategic plans, they're essentially a learning vehicle. It's not that anybody wants to pretend that they're going to be right. It's first of all that they're going to be a better it's going to help you take better decisions now than you would have done if you hadn't done the exercise. Mm -hmm. And in a year or two's time, or in the appropriate time span, you should be reviewing your strategic plan and reviewing your forecast to see why it didn't work. So how can we do it better in the future? And people argue that just because you can't make perfect forecasts, you shouldn't do it. That's not the point. All we're trying to do with all these exercises is reduce the level of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So tell us, how did you become a professor of strategic management? <laughs> well, uh, almost by chance, because uh, I've been in involved in a number of things in the, in the 60s since I went to university and went to business school. And um, 
went into industry and I was involved with the association of MBAs. And I'd been doing some new venture development work with ICI um, in the late 80s. What is ICI? Uh, Imperial Chemical Industries. It was the, big, the main chemical industry or one of the main companies in Britain at the time. It doesn't exist anymore. But um, the, uh, when they reorganised, as they did very regularly, um, they, they wanted to move me from new venture development onto another area, and I said uh, that I didn't particularly want to do that. So I was doing some freelance work, and I, got I applied to do a job with the Technopark, in South Bank, uh, which I got shortlisted and I didn't get the job, but the Vice-Chancellor of the University rang me up out of the blue and asked me if I wanted to help set up the management centre at South Bank. Well, I'd never given that any thought at all and I think that I wouldn't really have expected to have ended up in the academic world. But uh, I said, well, why not at the time? In practice, the last uh, 25 years or so in, in teaching in the academic world have probably been the most rewarding part of my whole career. Mm. Um, and it was very fortunate for me, I think, that I'd got into the habit of writing articles about various things that I felt strongly about um, in the previous 20 years, even though there was no particular reason Nobody was funding it, and nobody was saying that you should do this. I just did them because I want, felt I had something to say. And I think that that probably held me in good stead to get into the academic mm -hmm. world, although I'm not really an academic mm -hmm. uh, because I'm much more interested in the practical side of things. And uh, we, we set up the management centre quite successfully. And, uh, and then a few years later, it got hit by the recession and they reorganised it and various things happened. And um, I ended up by essentially focusing on teaching strategy. Uh, I'm very pleased that I didn't get the job of being the head of the business department at the time because I think that administrative jobs in academic academia are very pressurised. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid to say that uh, one of the things that I have found, especially in semi-retirement, is that I really enjoy doing what I want to do and not what other people seem to think that would be a good idea if I did. Uh, tell me, what do you like the most being at the front end of the academic world? Well, I think the main thing that I find uh, rewarding is to be able to engage with students, and a lot of them are masters and mature students, and to encourage them to think um, positively about things that they haven't thought about before, to uh, get them to develop their broader view of life and their 
issues and the subject that they're looking at. And strategy and future studies are both very broad issues. Mm. Uh, they do confront me personally and as a subject area with, with a very fundamental paradox. And that is that an enormous amount of success for various people is defined in terms of being very focused on something. And the essence of strategy is to be able to be very um, flexible and cover a wide range of subjects and both that and future studies because you're there part of the secret is making connections between things mm -hmm. and so uh, it's it's much less um, much more difficult to define success in the historic way that a lot of success has been defined. And what do you like the least by working, you know, as a teacher? I'm sure that teaching has also perhaps the least, you know, less enjoyable part. What, what will that be? I think that it's becoming increasingly competitive. It's becoming increasingly process-orientated. Um, performance measures of all sorts, some of which you might not agree with, but you don't have much influence over changing them. In other words, personally I would be quite reluctant. I'm glad I'm not in the middle of it now because I have a lot of sympathy for people in the middle of it because they really don't have very much control over their work. Their work is defined by outside pressures of various kinds, whether it's teaching or research. Mm. And uh, again, if they want to be successful, they have to be very committed to things that essentially they don't have control over. Yeah. So, um, so then, um, you know, you told me actually how you became a strategic, uh, a professor of strategic management. So, and also your work was focused on leadership, wisdom, knowledge, management, and organization performance and obviously future study. What would you say is the common thread between all those things actually that you were doing or you know teaching? One of the things that happened in, in the 80s, 90s is that I thought that all those subject areas were related and at the time they were all in different boxes. Mm -hmm. um, it was very interesting being involved in the Millennium Project in the 90s and the World Future Society when we were running up to the Millennium. And uh, at that time, there was an enormous amount of thought, probably the biggest in human history, went into looking at the future. Most of it was very technologically driven. And I remember raising the question wouldn't it be useful to just, uh, for somebody to say, well, what have we really learned from the last 2,000 years that would be impo important to pass on to the future if we wanted a better future? And that led me into looking at wisdom. 
and I put together a, a short article uh, for the Futurists called A Thousand Messages for the New Millennium, uh, which was trying to identify well, what was the wisdom that was important to concentrate on in, in the broadest sense of seeing how they could be integrated into our learning processes if we wanted a better world in the future, rather than just saying, well, technology was going to take us to Mars in 2014 or 2030, uh, and we were going to have all sorts of other technological development. I think increasingly now we've seen how that dimension and focus on people and values and the social dimension is becoming much more important than just the material dimension or the technology dimension. Uh, the other thing that was interesting for me, because I was originally an engineer, was that I'd been brought up on this rather mechanistic period of data, information, knowledge and wisdom, as if it was a me mechanistic progression for, through that hierarchy. And when I looked at it, and I wrote a bit about this at the time, it seemed to me that it, it didn't really work. Okay, information was about giving data more context, but knowledge was really the use of information. And quite often people talk about knowledge when they're talking about information. Mm -hmm. But if you see knowledge as the use of information, then you can see wisdom as the good use of knowledge. Mm. Because the process that we've been talking about before is a mechanistic process that hasn't got a values dimension. Now the implication of that way of looking at the pyramid is that actually your values start at the beginning as well. Your values will determine what data you're interested in mm -hmm. and that will determine what information you're... So it's a very much a dynamic process mm -hmm. of the interrelationship between data, information, knowledge right. and wisdom. wisdom. Wow. But in all the knowledge management books that I came across in the 90s when I was looking at strategy and it was a big time for knowledge management, first of all, they didn't talk about wisdom. Secondly, they hardly talked about people. And they talked about knowledge management as if it was a mechanistic process. Yeah, like a succession gathering the information of yeah. the organization. And in the exactly, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. But in essence, mm. what makes it work mm. is people. Now, a development of that, and this is something again which I've uh, it's a very simple point, but it's, I think it's a very critical point, is that after looking at strategy for quite a long time, I've come to the conclusion that the quality of decisions that, taken, that get taken in an organisation depend more on the quality of the conversations that take place in the organisation than on anything else. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't get discussed. In fact, in most strategy books, they don't talk about people issues. That should be really people issues in conversation. The conversation should be the first chapter. I'm 
one of my regrets perhaps is that I uh, never got round to um, writing the strategy book that I thought needed to be written. Um, and I'm, you can still write it now. Yes, I'm, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy to help somebody else with writing it. Uh -huh. But the trouble with writing books, and I've written quite a lot of papers on various subjects, is that um, I find I can say all I need to say in a few thousand words, and it requires a lot of uh, commitment and energy to turn those few thousand words into a book. And I'm much, I, I think in a way I have perhaps attention deficit disorder or too much curiosity, I want to move on to something else because I've said it all I'm going to say, feel I've got to say on that subject. And, and I'm going to move Why on. should that be turning to 40,000 words if you can tell that in 10,000? Why would well, that right, have to be turned uh, into 50,000 words? Because that's what a book would be. No, Who Moved My Cheese was a very short book, right? Yes. And uh, perhaps less than 10,000 even. Yes, maybe. And people love that, so you should yeah. write that. <laughs> 10,000 words, that would be great. <laughs> Uh, well, it's all, I've said it all in various articles, mm -hmm. everything I want, want to say on the subject now. Okay, so we need to gather those then. Uh, <laughs> I would be happy to work with somebody to, to uh, make that happen. Cool, okay. But we'll I think once you get to um, your late 70s, you um, don't have your energy levels and commitment levels mm. as high as you perhaps should have. Mm -hmm. Although... I have to say, I probably haven't lost much of my curiosity. Exactly. We're going to talk about that later, of course, so what you're up, uh, you know, spending your time doing now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I definitely see actually how now those, is fascinating how those disciplines actually tie together. That, I never thought about that, actually. I thought there was just like this disjunction, but actually there is a thread. The way you explain that is really fascinating. And what is horrendous in many ways is that in general, and I can't say that I've explored everything that's been written in this subject area, but in general, people who talk about data and information management and all these issues don't bring them all together mm -hmm. to see how they're connected. Now, obviously... They're all connected with leadership. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to link in that into leadership in a different dimension, one of the key roles of leadership, there are two key issues. One is a values-driven one, and that is you have to be genuinely concerned with the... Long-term interests of other people, and people who are in powerful positions, but primarily concerned with their long, short-term interests, are much more likely to be megalomaniacs than leaders. <laughs> Strangely enough, and we really need to rehabilitate that word leadership because quite often we're using it to apply to people who are. Um, 
even psychopaths, megalomaniacs, dictators. We have plenty of words to explain those, mm -hmm. but those people are not leaders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you start looking at who people think are leaders, mm -hmm. you can see that the people that they come up with are the people who are genuinely concerned with the long-term interests of other people. Mm -hmm. So, so there's, you've got the values dimension. Now, the other dimension is that they have to be well-informed, mm. or as well-informed as possible. Mm -hmm. Nobody is perfectly well-informed, yes. especially these days, mm -hmm. and it's only megalomaniacs mm -hmm. who think they know everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm not particularly willing to make, mention names <laughs> at this stage, but it might come out later. But uh, probably names come to mind. Um, but the key role then is the ability to ask questions that other people aren't asking and to seriously look at and listen to the answers and be able to bring together the answers from different sources to see how they all fit together in the decisions that need to be taken. If I could wave a magic wand and say but what would be the one, one of the things that would make a big difference to organisations? One would be for them to have an independent audit at a board level of what the people at the board level felt about the quality of the conversations that took place at that level. And unfortunately, because of recent developments in high, highly high-profile areas, the, the boss-type model, which I thought we'd lost in the 19th century or the first half of the 20th century, evolving into the new leadership model, because in the old days, um, 50 years ago, even further ago than that, you could reasonably expect the person at the top of an organisation to know everything that they needed to know. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't really need to consult a lot. Mm -hmm. But today, uh, it's very rare that anybody... Uh, it's impossible. One of the nightmares that we have, we all have, is that we're just overloaded with information. Mm -hmm. And we have to find a way of sorting it out in terms of our own priorities, in terms of a strategy, if we're taking decisions. And that requires values and it requires us to be much more discriminating over, I was going to say where we get our information from, but the risk of that is that we, if we do that, we tend to get our information from sources that reinforce what our earlier views are, mm -hmm. rather than challenge them. Mm. So the, the, the difficulty is that you've got to have constructive, creative challenges in this process, but you've still got to, in many, nearly all situations, you've still got to end up by taking a decision. Mm -hmm. And that decision 
invariably is taken with imperfect information. Mm. So wherever possible, you have to have a process for reviewing the decision in the light of new information. So what that process can be, really, how to review you know, all those information, what will be the criteria to make a decision finally? Well, I want to just uh, go back to mm-hmm. one of the f- earliest things that I wrote about, mm. um, because I happened to be interested in it uh, in the early mid-60s. I wrote a pamphlet on energy policy. Mm-hmm which was published and it was at the time it was a challenge to the accepted view and that's really one of the things that I've always enjoyed doing is to find a way of asking questions, being curious about challenging accepted views in a way we're getting so institutionalised now that it's very difficult to do that particularly if you're in an organisation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I wrote this pamphlet and I was challenging the optimistic view that they had at the time uh, that the coal industry had a fantastic future. We were then producing 250 million tonnes of coal a year. We had 750,000 miners in the coal mines. I'd worked out that half the coal mines were being run as a social service and that this wasn't a very clever thing to be doing. Uh, We'd been much better off putting money into creating new jobs for miners and not subsidising them in the horrendous um, job of producing coal. Now, uh, this this particular forecast proved to be roughly right. By the time we got, because I said that by the time we got to the year 2000, this was in the mid-60s, we probably wouldn't be needing very much coal. Well, it was out by a few years, but it, it was correct. But it was correct for the wrong reasons. <laughs> uh, it was correct because I was arguing that the development of nuclear power in the 60s was going to be totally undermining the, the coal market. And at the time, we hadn't found any oil or gas in the North Sea. Um, and so my projections were right for the wrong reasons. The nuclear industry, totally unpredictable. Well, I suppose it was really. The Chernobyl accident, the horrendous accident at Chernobyl, in the mid-80s, I think, um, ruined the future of the nuclear industry, just as the Japanese accident a few years ago has reinforced that scepticism about it. Though Increasingly now, there are more people thinking, well, perhaps there was, there is scope for that. And it's worth bearing in mind that when you are thinking about energy policy, you've got to think about 50 or 100 years ahead. But you've got to have a process that systematically reviews all the issues as independently as possible. And it's very problematic if that systematic review is driven by what I call 
partisan political issues. There should, if you're looking that far ahead, you've got to find a framework that really looks at the issues as broadly and independently as possible with, as far as possible, a common set of values and a common understanding of the risks and the returns. That isn't easy, but if you don't do that, what will happen is that every few years you'll get a shift in, in the policies that can then end up by being very expensive because uh, they're not based upon the best information that would be available at the time. But you've got to have a process of reviewing it, just as an organisation has to have a process of reviewing its strategy. It's got, it might have a five-year plan, but it's got to say every year or perhaps more frequently than that, a meeting that says, well, what has changed? What are the implications of this change? But you can't suddenly change your strategy every other year, unless you're, I don't know where you can do that, but you can't do that in most industries because, and certainly in the academic world, and certainly when I was involved with the university, we needed a 10-year strategy to get the MBA programme off the ground and successful. But the university reorganised it every t two years. It brought in new people, they had different ideas. And so, in a way, we've never really been able to get our strategy together in, as well as it should have been. Why? Right, because people come with new, different ideas, different set of values, and uh, which were not from... The yes, and that, that the, the nature of the decision and the nature of the business you're in is you have to have a reasonably, because there's got to be room for changes, a reasonably consistent strategy for five or ten years for it to get a reputation in the marketplace for you to see students through the pipeline. Is there a science to have this process done or is it, is it an art? Well, I think that I would say... It's, it's essentially a science. Now, if you wanted me to say, I would say it's 80% a science and 20% an art. Because it has to be an independent, and, and science is looking at empirical evidence, it's looking at independence, it's looking at all these things as information. Now, in a way, art is putting the values into it. But the values, just like going back to the point about wisdom, the underlying values don't change. The, one of the interesting things that I found when looking at wisdom and values around the world is that they were incredibly similar because they were essentially what made relationships work, what made organisations work, and what made society work, and how people individuals related to the bigger picture and that is always something that, that's nearly always the case that it's roughly the same irrespective of where you are so it's no coincidence I don't think it is anyway that I think all the ten major religions have as an underlying tenant which unfortunately they're not very good at practicing 
that the key issue of their religion is love thy neighbour as thyself. Mm -hmm. But it, that's because that's what makes relationships work, society work. That's where values come from. Mm. A lot of people say values are very complicated and therefore we can't research them because they're, they're too um, diverse and problematic. But actually, values are essentially about how an individual relates to another person and how much do the wider interests of other people or the broader society, how much do they influence them in the way they take decisions, which comes back to what we were talking about earlier about leadership. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I also know that you influenced um, um, one of uh, the pillars of my book when I was writing my book, Personal Branding in the Digital Age, which is pillar number six, which was actually, was, uh, first of all, connect with authenticity. And then you pointed out that, you know, under the name of authenticity, people can do crazy stuff, which I totally agree. And I've changed my pillar to connect with empathy. Can you tell us the difference between the authenticity and empathy? How you see it and why it is very important to make that decision, well, the distinction. The, the, the issue is slightly related. I think it overlaps with uh, some work that I did some time ago on the relationship between power and responsibility. Authenticity is slightly related to power, which is the ability to make something happen. And responsibility is in whose interests are you making it happen. Mm -hmm. So if you find that somebody is being authentic without any values, <laughs> we, we won't mention any There is a risk. <laughs> there is a high probability that sooner or later they will destroy themselves because of the internal contradictions. In many cases, where you've had dictators doing this, mm -hmm. or megalomaniacs doing mm. this, they, they end up by destroying themselves at a high cost to other people. Mm -hmm. In a way, I couldn't care very much about the fact that they destroy themselves mm. Because, in my view, the sooner that happens, the better, quite often. <laughs> but the cost that they will impose on other people, mm. because they have not been sufficiently compassionate, empathetic, enlightened, all the other things, is potentially horrendous. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we've got to live with today, and we've had to live with throughout history, mm -hmm. but we have not learned the lessons of history, mm -hmm. because history has told us time and time again, this is what happens. And strangely enough, I mean, Britain has been very well developed in its history uh, faculties and universities. And if only the history faculties spent more time saying, what can we learn from history that is useful for us? to pass on for the future, we would be in a far better position than we are today because preoccupying 
people with obscure information about history without seeing where that connects to where we are now. There are some exceptions. There are some exceptions. I think that there is somebody was saying that there is a very there were some very similar close similarities recently I was reading between Plato's Republic <laughs> and some of the um, people that were involved in the Tory leadership. <laughs> you know, there were things that we could learn mm -hmm. and some of this gets into the media but not enough. Mm. So that also leads, and this is uh, mm. an issue that I was um, um, in a way missed out on but was lucky in a, in a way to miss out on because I did science and engineering and I didn't do the humanities really mm -hmm. and I think that the humanities are a massive source of the wisdom of history if they're taught in that way but they're not taught in that way Partly because I think for most of the 20th century, at least in Britain, people have been very frightened about putting values into the educational system. Mm -hmm. Because, essentially because, they think, well, that depends on whose values. And uh, they're also, the, the establishment is also very frightened are one of the key values mm. in terms of people being having a useful relationship with other people in the process of their decision making a key dimension of that is fairness we talk a lot about the lack of trust inside organizations but there's not enough enough research and not enough discussion but where does this trust come from where does this lack of trust come from and essentially it comes from people perceiving that there is a lack of fairness in the processes in other words the people who are taking the decisions are perceived to be taking these decisions primarily in their interests and not in either the interests of the other person, all in the interest of the organisation as a whole. And that is why we have so many scandals. I mean, it is quite horrendous coming down just on the tube today. If you read any issue of the Financial Times, three quarters of the articles are essentially about scandals. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if we go back at this um, idea that the history, people, we know what has happened in the past, but people keep repeating that over or over again. What does that say? And whose job is it to actually make people understand what has happened and what will happen again if you take the same decision? As I should say, you know, doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results is uh, the definition of madness. Yes. So where do we go from here? Who's, whose role is it to make sure... Okay. You know, that we need to learn from history. Okay. Now, the first thing is that the more change that's going on, the more important it is for us to have effective learning processes mm -hmm. if we wanted to make sure that the change that's going to be taking place can be equated with progress. 
because not all change is progress. Mm -hmm. And uh, the difficulty that we have, certainly in Britain, is a lot to do with the 19th century class structure because there's not enough trust between the various groups. We have not got what I would call the homogeneous middle class mm -hmm. uh, structures that you have in, in some parts of the world, in Europe because of the war. And one of the strange benefits of the war was that they made it a much more homogeneous middle class society and, and they reinforced that by having a proportional representation system. Whereas we have a far first past the post system which is going to cause horrendous problems potentially in the next election if you have four parties that are roughly equal. That could produce some very peculiar results. Another question related to that is where do we get our information from to make us better informed? And of course, now we get it 80% from the media. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, the media has a great deal of responsibility and we have responsibility mm -hmm. just as mm -hmm. we're doing this. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do it, I don't have to mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. um, we do it because we think that it would be a good thing mm -hmm. to get these ideas out into a bigger audience for discussion. Mm -hmm. And this is all we can do. Mm -hmm. I, I sometimes get pretty depressed mm -hmm. at the moment mm -hmm. because it's as if we've taken three steps backwards mm -hmm. uh, because of the changes that are going on. And mm -hmm. the horrendous way that abuse is going around over uh, international situations. On the surface is not very helpful at all. And the only reassuring things is that most people don't take the person who's conducting the abuse very seriously. They think it's a joke. No, I'm not mentioning any names. Okay? <laughs> yeah, but it's a dangerous thing. joke yeah. because it, not only is it likely to be having a very damaging effect on the global economy, mm. um, almost on the basis of um, impulse, uh, very unfortunately motivated impulses, we could be involved in nasty physical conflicts mm. that really should be sorted out in a totally different way. Mm. But the way that certain international negotiations appear to be conducted at the moment uh, doesn't lead one to be very optimistic. Mm. So let us, us at least, uh, you know, be optimistic. Before we get to the part of meaningful work, meaningful life, just tell me, what was the job you wanted to do when you were kids? Oh. <laughs> Can you remember? Uh, I, I, Yes, uh, I think that I had, when I was a kid, fantasy jobs about being a motor racing driver and, a, and a, an airline pilot and all those sort of things. Um, but I think another fantasy job was to, to be working for the United Nations. Yeah, interesting. And at, at what, what, how old were you when you were thinking that? Well, I suppose when I started 
leaving school to go to university. I couldn't, at the time there wasn't the sort of courses that you can do now to get you in there, but, um, or even it was difficult to get in to do economics, but I'm glad I didn't do economics because I think it's better to discover the subject later. Um, and it's interesting that in the middle 70s, I had the opportunity and I was taken, I was offered a job basically to go and work for the World Bank and I was taken to, um, flown to Washington for my final interview to work out exactly how I was going to, I'd had the job offer and I, I got to the World Bank and I saw this massive building and I said, I was working for a very small organisation at the time and I said, I don't want it. It was also a very um, empty environment. It was a very unfriendly environment, mm. I felt. There was no people. It was not... Um, it didn't, nothing struck me as user-friendly. <laughs> and so I turned it down. <laughs> and uh, I don't regret turning it down because I'm sure I would have been caught up in studying whether or not to build a steel mill in the middle of... Brazil for 25 years and, <laughs> and in the end they decided not to do it. Mm. So w what has happened since then is I've been able to get involved in lots of different things, largely I'm pleased to say, because I've had quite a lot of control over my own career and that has arisen I suppose by more by accident and design, uh, but I've never been, well, except for a very short time, I would say, never been really motivated by making money. It's nice to have a salary coming in that you can live off, that you can then do your own thing, even if it's inside an organisation. has uh, been one of the things that has enabled me to do different things yeah so okay so now like tell me when when did you realize who you are and what you are meant to do in life i haven't well tune in next week for the second part of this fascinating interview with dr bruce lloyd emeritus professor in strategic management loudon south bank university we will go into more personal revelations about his life, the choice he's made, the influence of his mom, the root cause of lack of trust in our society, the true meaning of love, and more gems on how to think strategically about life. You really don't want to miss this. What was your key takeaway from this episode? What are you committed to do today to find more meaning in your work and live a more meaningful life? If you are ready to leverage your personal brand in a meaningful way to create a successful business you love, book a call with me at francinebelly.com slash call. The show notes of this episode of Meaningful World, Meaningful Life are available on my webpage francinebelly.com slash podcast that F-R-A-N-C-I-N-E-B-E-L-E-Y-I.com slash podcast with all the references and resources shared on this show. 
Once you are there, leave a message in the comment section to let me know about your key takeaway from this episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to show your love and support, subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app where you are listening to this podcast and leave me a five-star review. It will take you a minute, but it will mean a lot to me and help me spread this message to many other people. Thank you for listening to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I will see you next week for another epic episode. Until then, dream and make an impact. Lots of love.